You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. It's Jenny. And Jen. (laughs) And this is a re-release of our episode about Teotihuacan, Eat Eat the the Rich. We have been blowing up the summer, bringing you episodes about ancient natural disasters and how they affected the people in their path, and we've got an episode coming up about a volcanic eruption with effects that were felt worldwide. This may have been one of the biggest eruptions in recorded history. Oh, swooning a little. But nobody knows what volcano did it. The evidence we have is all from written documentation, archaeology, and mythology from cultures all over the world. This is a big story, and we realized as we were doing it that we'd already covered some of these details in our episodes on Teotihuacan and the Nazca Lines. Teotihuacan's history was shaped by volcanoes. It was originally founded by refugees from an earlier volcanic eruption. Its chief export, obsidian, was used to make knives and tools and was formed by volcanic eruptions. The city experienced famine and high levels of social unrest at certain points in its history that may have been caused by the global effects of a massive volcanic eruption. We thought now would be a good time to revisit this story ahead of the new episode, so enjoy! Live by the volcano. Die by the volcano. The sun has been swallowed up by the ash cloud. The sky, high above, is gray, turning the day into a strange twilight. The air is still and hot, and the ash that falls down on us scratches our lungs, buries our homes, and makes it impossible to breathe. We wrap damp cloths around our faces. We are all ravenously thirsty, but most of the water has been fouled by the ash. The ground has been shaking off and on for days now, tremors that mark the earth waking up, the mountains stretching out from its slopes and yawning. We have said our prayers, beseeched our gods to make the sun return, to end the never-ending night, but even the great priests have no answers. They too look to the sky, they look to the mountain as it froths and foams, lava slipping down its sides, and they have no answers. I tell my husband that we must go. He looks at me skeptically. Everything we have is here. Where will we go? We've worked too hard to start over. This will pass. I look at our modest home. We have worked so hard. Long nights, fingers scraped, 
and cut to the bone fashioning the sought-after pottery of our city, but we can work that hard again. We've done it before. I take his hand and lay it over my straining stomach. Everything we have is here, I tell him. The baby kicks at the feel of his hand on mine. We must go. If we stay, we die. He shakes his head. I cannot leave. I cannot. I see the fear in his eyes, the terror. I drop his hand and nod. I had hoped he would see sense in my words. I had hoped that the life we had built together would be enough to convince him to flee. To understand that as long as we are together, as long as we had each other, we could weather whatever comes next. But I understand the fear in his eyes. The fear of letting go of this life we've made here. Even as the city around us is filled with fleeing people, men, women, and children all hurrying for the gates, desperate to leave the city as everything falls around us, certain that if they do not go now, there will be no escape from the gods. I pull my cloak over my head. I have taken next to nothing, just what I can carry, the weight of our family already heavy in my belly. I have to go because our baby has to survive. I lean up on my tiptoes and give my husband a final kiss. I shall pray for you and for this city. If, if you should survive this, you know where I will be. You know where I've gone. He knows where I'm going, far enough to be free of the rivers of red that streak down the volcano's flanks, but close enough to run to, with wide arms to shelter all of us. A good life can find me there, I tell myself because I have no hope for this one. I have no hope for our city. He whispers the name of that foreign city like a prayer, and then he whispers my name. And I pray I will hear his voice again as I join the streaming line of refugees fleeing into the darkness, hoping to escape the violence of the gods, hoping to find a new life. I'm Jen McManamy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Hey, Jenny, what city do you think I was talking about? I know it's not Pompeii, Jen. (laughs) I tricked you. (laughs) Do you want to tell the people the name of the city that this woman is fleeing to? Where she's fleeing to or fleeing from? Can you pronounce the one that she's fleeing from? We're going to have to at some point because it's in the episode. I think they're going to find out. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time. It is time to discuss the city where everything began. Teotihuacan. As you've all noticed, we have finally, finally left Greece and Rome. And while I did a little switcheroo and made you think that we were finally going to talk about Pompeii, we're not. (laughs) We are so excited to be able to tell you about Teotihuacan, which is in Mesoamerica. It's about, I think, 30 miles outside of or 27 miles outside of Mexico City. And uh, it has all of the hallmarks of a gen episode. Do we know what those hallmarks are? There's a volcano. (laughs) There's a volcano, and I think that's basically it. Yeah, there's some real dark mythology and a volcano. For fans of Jenny's episode, there is also in this lots of skeletons in places where they shouldn't be. There's something for everybody at Teotihuacan. Volcanoes and skeletons. Exciting. There's also one of our favorite themes, an eating of the rich. Let's not give away the ending. (laughs) Here's the thing. I found out about this mysterious ancient city. When I was doing research for what would turn out to be the second episode I wrote this season, but I think it was like the second episode of the season, although I didn't write it that way. And that was the Carfi episode, The Last Refuge of the Minoans. During that research, I really wanted to track down volcanoes that shaped the ancient world. And I'd found Carfi because of my research into Aokigahara, which was the episode on the Japanese suicide forest. 
And because I'd spent a lot of time tracking down ancient volcanic eruptions and their effect on uh, climate change as well as earthquakes, I'd managed to watch a documentary that sparked a lot of interest. In this documentary that focused on Carfi and volcanoes, there was a section about Teotihuacan, the ancient Mexican city whose population had been impacted by volcanic eruptions, plural, climate change, and was, at one time, the biggest city in pre-Columbian America. I knew very little about Teotihuacan, but as I dove into the mysterious city, I knew that this was the perfect topic for our series. So I filed away the city until I finished writing three other episodes. Three! And now, finally, I get to return. Teotihuacan is an ancient pre-Columbian city in Central America, only about roughly 25, 30 miles northeast of where Mexico City is today. It was founded almost 2,000 years ago, I would say approximately around the 1st century AD. The dates are a little fuzzy on that. It's the home of some of the most iconic Mesoamerican monuments in existence, including the Pyramids of the Moon and the Sun, and the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpent, the Palace of the Jaguar, the Palace of the Butterflies. The first century was when it became like a city, but there were people in that area from about the 600s BC. And as you talked about in the Cahokia episode, it's common for people to be in the area ahead of time and then for like a major event to turn it from a settlement into a major city pretty quickly. Like Jen said, there were people in this area from the 600s BC. The city itself, as we know it, was probably founded roughly around the first century AD. And the city was abandoned roughly around the 600s to the 700s AD. The dates are a little bit fuzzy. After roughly six to 700 years of continuous habitation. After that, it stood empty for another 600 years, undisturbed and waiting. The once bustling avenues and streets, filled with dozens of languages, went silent and still. All that remained were ghosts of those who once were, their shadows long gone into the cold ground and yet still somehow present. The wide avenue of the dead that ran between two dominating pyramids, one to the sun and one to the moon, stood empty now but the remnants of the millions of feet still haunted it. At its height, this was the largest city in Mesoamerica. It would have been home to up to 200,000 people. It's a lot bigger than Cahokia. But for over 600 years, the city was only home to ghosts. It was left to the sun, sky, rain, and heat. The city waited patiently to be found again. When the Aztecs first cast their eyes upon the city, sometime in the 1300s, they had no name for it. So they gave it one. In Nahuatl, their language, they called the city Teotihuacan, the city where one goes to become a god, or the city of gods. But make no mistake, the city of Teotihuacan wouldn't have been called that by the people who lived there. Whatever the city was originally called was lost when the city was abandoned. In this new life, this rediscovered life, it became what the Aztecs believed it to be, a city where the gods had lived. The Aztecs at the time were not the classical Aztecs we think of today, with their incredible pyramids and monuments. They were a small group of wanderers, impoverished immigrants, coming down from the north. They were amazed by what they saw in this abandoned city, the sheer size of it. What had happened to these people? Where had they gone? Why had they left their city? What was this place? Camilla Townsend, in her book The Fifth Son, describes what the experience of finding this city might have been like for the Aztecs. Quote, The city rose out of the vacuum to such heights of power that even centuries after it fell, 
its ruins were known to Shieldflower and her people. Shieldflower was like a, a mythical or legendary uh, figure in Aztec mythology and history. When her ancestors came down from the north, they paused in their passage over the ring of mountains that encircled the central valley at the heart of the region and looked down at the panorama before them. All who came this way did this, and to a person of ordinary experience, it was a truly awe-inspiring vista. The valley was actually a basin without drainage. The damp earth of its frequently soaked plains was perfect for farming, and the encircling sweep of mountains formed a literal barricade against the outside world. It seemed to be the very center of the earth, created as a sort of enchanted place. In the pre-dawn darkness, the scattered villages were visible, for the women were already up, lighting their fires, and the points of light shone in the obscurity like clusters of stars in the midst of the blackness. Later in the book, The Fifth Sun, Camilla Townsend continues with, quote, Perhaps that same month, or a bit later, the wanderers went to see the great ruins that lay in the northern half of the valley. Ruins that were famous to everyone in their world and could be seen for miles. Shieldflower probably never saw them herself, for girls did not get out much in times of war, but her father or grandfather certainly would have in the days before the trouble started, when the group's menfolk spent their time as wandering bands of hired mercenaries. Those ruins were a holy place. The earliest arrivals from the north had given them a name in their own language, Teotihuacan, by which they were known ever after. It tied the place to the divine, for it meant either the place of people who become gods or the place of those who had great gods, depending on what one heard. The descendants of the newcomers later envisioned Teotihuacan as the birthplace of their world. They said it was the scene of their storied hero, Nanahuatzin's courageous self-immolation. Sometimes they told the tale in great detail, saying that when the first four imperfect worlds, each with their own sun and living creatures, had all been destroyed and the earth was left in darkness, darkness, the gods met together at Teotihuacan. The gods gathered and took counsel at Teotihuacan. They said to each other, who will carry the burden? Who will take it upon himself to see that there will be a sun and that there will be a dawn? That's quite the lens. Right? It's quite dramatic. I love it. And this book is so dramatic and rich. Like, in our upcoming Women of Myth series, you will get to hear from Camilla Townsend herself. The whole book is like this. It's dramatic and rich and brilliant. So let's break this down a bit. So sometime in the 1300s, the dates are quite fuzzy, the Aztecs, a wandering band of immigrants and mercenaries, discovered a vast empty city. This is their history as told by them. And this was a city that they named Teotihuacan. The city was perfectly situated with mountains to protect it, a basin in a valley where the fields flooded periodically. This process of flooding fields to grow crops was very important for the people of Teotihuacan. And when the Aztecs first saw the city, they also saw these raised, flooded agricultural fields that the people had built centuries ago. And they were like, who the hell? Who were these geniuses? As Chen said one time. Who are these people who know how to flood fields like this? What What is this amazing knowledge? And where did they go? I think the, the thing that really broke their brains, as would break mine, is like, where did they go? It's like wandering upon a ghost town and being like, what happened here? Where are the people? And obviously, my first thought would be like, this is literally a ghost town. Everything is haunted. I'm getting out of here before I get cursed. 
That's probably a thought that they had, you know? I mean, I bet that they had no small amount of awe and fear wandering amidst those pyramids. I can't blame them because that that is my first thought of. No, I'm going to get cursed. Yeah, definitely. So Teotihuacan was a big city. It was eight square miles or roughly 20 square kilometers at its height and would have housed between 125,000 and 200,000 people. That is so many people. That is a big city. You can only imagine what the ruins of this city would have looked like. A wide avenue ran through the city connecting two great pyramids, the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon. This avenue has been called the Avenue of the Dead. This name and all the names that we're telling you come down to us from the Aztecs. They were the ones who gave names to all the features in this city long after their original names had been forgotten. What the people of Teotihuacan called their city and stuff in it is unknown. The city also had about 2,000 single-story apartments. Big palaces, which were multi-level and usually big family homes or homes of priests and nobles, these palaces sometimes included things like workshops behind them. But where had all the people gone? Why would they leave such a perfect location? Maybe the people of the city had gone to become gods or to commune with the gods. That's the only good reason why they would leave such prime real estate, right? Maybe that was why the city was abandoned. Exactly. Why else would you leave this perfectly good-looking city? So... The mystery puzzled the Aztecs, and it still puzzles us today. Many things about Teotihuacan are and always will remain a mystery. The city had its own writing system, but it has yet to be translated. So when we look at the city and how it's interpreted, one lens we're looking through is an Aztec lens. We get a lot of names associated with Teotihuacan and its iconography from the Aztecs. The Aztecs looked at the incredible imagery of Teotihuacan and crafted their own religion and gods around it. So the names of deities we see at Teotihuacan often have Aztec names and are described through an Aztec lens. But the Aztecs never knew the people of Teotihuacan. The Aztecs migrated to the area 600 years after the city was abandoned. It's like if we discovered abandoned churches centuries after Christianity was abandoned, with no cultural context, and decided to craft our own new religion based only on its iconography. And we've seen this a few other times this season, right? We talked about this with Carfi and what happened during the Bronze Age decline and how you have the Cyclopean walls in Athens and at Mycenae, which are these huge walls that were so big that the people were like, we don't know how they built it. Giant Cyclopses must have done this. When you have these kind of catastrophic culture ending moments and then other people come into that area, they don't know the stories of what happened. So they give them sort of their spin sometimes, or they make up new ones, which again, we saw so much between archaic and classical Greece. Yeah, it's interesting because it's kind of like what pre-modern peoples do when they come upon ancient ruins that they can't explain. They engage in myth-making and create their own stories to explain these ruins. The Aztecs really did this here, it seems like. And, And also just, you know, to point out, We are talking about the Aztecs in the past tense a lot. We talk about Aztec beliefs and practices that they had. There are still people today who exist who speak Nahuatl, who are descended from the Aztecs. They are still around and with us today. So we are certainly not saying that they still have any of those beliefs. I don't know what people believe and practice now. I'm not going to say like people still believe in a certain god. I really don't know. I haven't done the research on that. We're speaking about the Aztecs in the past tense to refer to the classical Aztec period, which lasted from the 1300s to 1500s AD. So anyway, you know, a lot of this we don't actually know if the Aztecs might have had their own. Of course, they had a religion prior to this. 
And they could have taken their own gods and their own mythology and kind of spliced it onto what they were seeing in Teotihuacan and combined it to make something new. Absolutely. And I will say that certain characters, some we'll talk about later on, are seen across Mesoamerica. And that tells us that these sort of deities and iconography were brought through cultural exchange, through potentially war prisoners and things like that. So none of these places existed in silos. As we'll talk about, the people of Teotihuacan traded with everyone. So it, it would make sense that eventually, hundreds of years down the line, bits of their religion, maybe their peoples, may have wound up in Aztec areas. And some of it may legitimately link back. We just don't know the answer to that. Right, exactly. So we don't know if the religion of Teotihuacan bore any resemblance to the way the Aztecs interpreted it. The Aztecs also gave names and associations to different landmarks in the city, associating them with different gods. And we don't know if these landmarks originally had those associations. What we know about Teotihuacan comes down to us through an Aztec lens, but that's not the only lens. It's also filtered through a Spanish lens a lot of the time. A lot of what we know about Aztec culture comes to us through the lens of the people who conquered them. While extensive work is being done to find sources from Aztec people pre-colonization, a lot of the things we know about their culture do come from dodgy sources at best. So yeah, that's what's happening here. We are seeing Teotihuacan through two lenses, essentially. The lens of the Aztecs who found an abandoned city and then essentially either inserted their own pre-existing gods onto the monuments or adopted the iconography of Teotihuacan to craft a new religion or possibly a combination of both. And we're seeing portions of the Aztec culture that came from this through the lens of the people who colonized them centuries later. It's a lot of lenses to juggle. Hopefully we have archaeology to fill in some gaps. But this is your disclaimer for the rest of the episode. We're going to be looking at the story of Teotihuacan, this mysterious abandoned city, through a few lenses. So here we go. So this mysterious ghost city that the Aztecs found in the 1300s AD was... Founded as a city roughly around the 1st century AD, but its roots go all the way back to the 600s BC. At this point in time, the area was first inhabited by humans. Agriculture was beginning. The fertile area was starting to become a small settlement, one that had its own springs. People began to settle around these springs, as this area was otherwise pretty arid, and an urban center began to grow sometime around the 200s BC. It remained a small settlement until around the 150s AD. It's around this time that Teotihuacan would start to take the shape that it was to become. Around the 100s AD to the 300s, maybe, the dates are real fuzzy here as you're we keep saying different dates, so they're fuzzy. Something happened that would forever change the fate of Teotihuacan and many people in central Mexico. I love that you actually looked into some of this stuff and you're like, yeah, these dates are real fucking fuzzy. I'm like, right? <laughs> like, I'm not making any of this shit up. I'm like, it's really tough to know what the hell was going on here. They're crazy. As Teotihuacan was growing, there was another city, Cuicuilco, which was about 60 kilometers or 37 miles or so away. This was a rival for the up-and-coming Teotihuacan. It was like a rival city. Cuicuilco was located in the Mexican highlands. At this time, it was more advanced than Teotihuacan, and it had a larger population. It had its own pyramid, and its people had their own gods and culture. Its population at the time might have been roughly around 20,000 people. And it had avenues, it had plazas built around these beautiful, shallow, reflective pools. It was also quite possibly even more ancient than Teotihuacan. The foundations of the pyramid found there may date as far back as 800 BC. 
Quiquilco was only roughly about 10 miles away from a volcano called, I think you pronounce it, Zitli, X-I-T-L-E. And at some point around, let's say, the 100s, 200s, 300s AD, the dates on this are extremely fuzzy, that volcano erupted. It entombed Quiquilco in a lava flow, making it essentially the Mesoamerican Pompeii. Teotihuacan was roughly, again, we've seen different distances on this, 50 miles north of Zitli, and this eruption would have a profound effect on the city as well. I saw differing things as well. And I wanted to stop here for a minute to talk about these real fuzzy dates. I've seen some sources claim that the Zitli volcano erupted sometime in the 100s AD, but also conflicting sources claiming that it was between 245 and 315 AD. And honestly, I I couldn't make any sense of this. I tried for a really long time, but it seems that the dates here are just wonky. And it's possible that this is because there were other major volcanic eruptions in Mexico in the first century AD, such as the Popocatepetl volcano, which is believed to have erupted in the first century AD with a volcanic explosivity index of six. What does that mean? So we talked about this a lot. I don't want to like spend a long time about this. Just tell me if it was a big one or not. Um, The volcanic explosivity index is how they measure the strength of a volcanic eruption. So a volcanic explosivity index of six would have caused some climate change and probably mass migration. Again, I couldn't find out exactly what this volcanic eruption looked like. We just know they think that a volcano of this magnitude happened in the first century. We would have seen climate change as well as probably mass migration of people who were living in that area. So it's kind of a big one. It's a big one. I believe that the biggest we've ever had was like an eight. There might have been a super volcanic eruption in Yellowstone that was a nine. I feel like either like seven or eight was probably something like Thera. So yeah, this would have been a big eruption. I don't know if it had pyroclastic flows. I don't know what it would have done, but it would definitely have caused some climate change. It would have put a lot of ash in the sky. So it could be confusion between these two volcanic eruptions that happened that is leading to some sources saying the eruption was in the hundreds and others saying it was in the 200s, 300s, but it was two different eruptions. Okay, so the theory is that there may have been two different eruptions that were both kind of big. Some sources say that this eruption happened in the hundreds and others say it was the 200s, 300s, right? But actually, there was another volcanic eruption in the hundreds. So it's possible that some of these sources are confusing those two eruptions and making them one and putting the dates wrong. That's what I think could be happening here. Again, this is just what I can get on free sourcing on stuff that I have access to. So I would say that probably what's happening is there were two different eruptions that might have been cited differently in other sources that's where the confusion is coming from. That's what it looks like to me. Like I said, it kind of doesn't matter. What mattered was what happened next. When the Zetli volcano erupted, it buried Quiquilco. The city was buried in a lava flow. You can see about eight buildings left in the city, preserved from the lava flow and a large pyramid. That's kind of it. The rest was buried. We don't know how big the city was. It could have been, you know, an ancient world Pompeii. A lot of it is under lava and hasn't been excavated. Yeah, and that was my bait and switch with the cold open. (laughs) Raise your hand if you thought it was Pompeii. Quiquilco is one of those places that when we return to this area, I will definitely go down a rabbit hole and tell you what life was like there and what it would have looked like for these people. And as much as I can about the volcanic eruption, but we're not going to be back here for a while, but it will be so much fun when I get there. So, the survivors of Quiquilco were now refugees. 
they took refuge in other Mesoamerican cities and settlements, with many of them finding a home in Teotihuacan. And no doubt they weren't the only ones, as other smaller settlements were also affected by the volcanic eruption. So, Teotihuacan's population increased almost overnight by tens of thousands. So it's during this time period between these two volcanic eruptions that Teotihuacan went from being a small settlement to a huge metropolis, one that probably would not have grown at the rate it did without these two volcanic events, if there were two, which I'm pretty sure there were. It's now that the City of Wonders began to first take shape. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So what was it like in Teotihuacan? Did they have indoor toilets? I did not find evidence of that, which was a huge bummer. Over the next few centuries, more and more people streamed into Teotihuacan from throughout the Gulf Coast. Some were refugees of war and natural disaster. Others may have been drawn to the city for its culture and nearness to the seat of power, because like Cahokia much later, Teotihuacan became the place to be. We're going to find out what it was like to be a part of the diaspora that helped Teotihuacan grow into the sprawling ancient metropolis that it became. One that was filled with dozens of different peoples, speaking different languages, with different parts of the city divided by ethnic groups. So there was like a Mayan quarter and like a Zapotec quarter and stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. There were certain areas of the city that you can see evidence of that being the case. And the thing about Teotihuacan is that it was very much a gridded, planned city. And you can see sort of different ethnicities in different areas. And we don't exactly know if they were like were clustered there as a result of natural migration, if they were there because of being war captives or anything. But we know that there were distinct ethnic areas, just like you see sometimes in modern big cities. Yeah. So we're going to talk about what everyday life might have looked like in Teotihuacan, what it was like to live there, what the houses were like. But first, we're going to discuss the major, big, prominent buildings that rose up in Teotihuacan as it grew, because these buildings would define the shape of the city and the lives of the people within it. The city in the wake of this volcanic eruption was planned on a grid, like Jen said. As we enter the city along the long Avenue of the Dead, which runs north... I have a question about the Avenue of the Dead, actually. Was this a road that pointed directly towards the Zeitli volcano? 
It does point directly to an extinct volcano. I don't know if that volcano is Zeetli or not. Because I thought I remembered you telling me that one time and I don't remember. So it is, so this is from uh, history.com. The Avenue of the Dead is a 1.5 mile long road that's oriented slightly east of True North and points directly at the nearby sacred peak of Kiro Gordo, an extinct volcano. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and if you've ever been to Pompeii, that is the one thing that is so eerie. I can only go based on where I've been, but when you've been to Pompeii, Mount Vesuvius looms over the ruins of Pompeii. You cannot get away from it. And it's the same here. There is an, a now extinct volcano that looms over the city. There was an extinct volcano really nearby that kind of loomed over this city, which was already affected by a volcanic explosion. So anyway, so the city in the wake of this volcanic eruption was planned on a grid. As we enter the city along the long Avenue of the Dead, which runs north to south through the gridded city, we come across the Pyramid of the Sun on the east side, the Temple of Quetzalcoatl, the Feathered Serpent, and in the north, the Pyramid of the Moon. All of these buildings would have lined the main avenue in Teotihuacan and dominated the landscape. They would have been impossible to miss. All of these buildings rose up in the gridded city over the course of roughly 300 years. Let's talk about the Pyramid of the Sun, Jenny. Around 100 AD, the Pyramid of the Sun was built. This is the Aztec naming convention again. What the people of Teotihuacan called it is a mystery, including whether it was actually associated with the sun. We think it was. The Pyramid of the Sun is massive. It dominates the city. It is one of the largest structures of its type in the Western Hemisphere. It's the largest pyramid in Teotihuacan, right? And the oldest. Yes, this is the biggest and the oldest. Yeah, it was the first and the oldest. And I believe it was built on like the the base of another old pyramid, like another old pyramid. It's like a nesting doll of pyramids, I believe, if I got this one right. It is located on the east side of the Avenue of the Dead. The Avenue of the Dead is a large 1.5 mile road that runs between the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon. It was thought that originally the buildings along this avenue, and there are quite a few buildings, were tombs, but the latest belief is that they were palaces of the upper classes. And because of people thinking they were tombs, I think that's where the Avenue of the Dead came from. The Pyramid of the Sun is 216 feet tall and measures 720 by 760 at its base. It was made from a million cubic yards of material, including tazontle, which is a rough red volcanic rock. This was actually used to fill in the pyramid in places, which I just found so fascinating because this type of rock was something they had in abundance and they used it to fill in their major pyramids, the sun, the moon, and the feathered serpent. And they had a lot of volcanic rock because of these volcanoes, but this particular one, it wasn't malleable and something they valued like obsidian. So this was one that they kind of used as their pyramid fill, like specifically. Yeah. And can you imagine like just... This is the rock we've got here. We need to fill the pyramid so that it's sturdy and we can make these corridors underneath, which we're going to talk about. So we'll use this rock. Yeah. So worldhistory.org tells us this about the Pyramid of the Sun. Quote, The five-level Pyramid of the Sun was actually built over a much earlier sacred tunnel cave and natural spring. The structure, constructed around 100 AD, has six platforms and measures 215 meters along the sides and towers 60 meters high, which made it one of the biggest structures ever built in the ancient Americas. The present exterior, which would have once had a facing of smooth lime plaster, covers a slightly smaller earlier pyramid built over a massive mud, brick, and rubble interior. So this is a pyramid within a pyramid. 
The top once had a small temple structure reached by a flight of stone stairs climbing the entire pyramid and which split and rejoined higher up. Inside the pyramid is a hundred-meter-long tunnel, which leads from beneath the outside staircase to a four-winged chamber, unfortunately looted in antiquity but probably once a burial chamber or shrine. The mystery continues. You might have noticed I said that this pyramid had both five and six terraces. Weirdly, during restoration work on the site that was done in 1905 to 1910, an architect, Leopoldo Batres, added a fifth terrace. During his restoration, much of the original facing stones were also removed. So I don't know why they're calling it restoration. It's just kind of rampant destruction and modification of this ancient site. Why? Why? In Teotihuacan, a lot of the murals and artwork has been removed off of the pyramid. And I think that's for its own protection. There is a museum on site where you can see a lot of those things. So it's possible that some of this was being removed for its own protection. But I don't know why you would choose to add another terrace onto this pyramid. That didn't make any sense to me. Right. So Britannica.com tells us, quote, Archaeologists believe that there was once a temple atop the pyramid. In the early 1970s, exploration below the pyramid revealed a system of caves and tunnel chambers, and other tunnels were later found throughout the city. Further discoveries were made in the ensuing decades. In 2011, archaeologists working under the pyramid center reported finding a cache containing shards of clay pots, pieces of obsidian, animal bones, three greenstone human figurines, and a greenstone mask. In addition, walls of what appeared to be three earlier buildings were uncovered. It was announced in 2013 that workers had discovered a covered pit beneath the platform that forms the pyramid's summit. Within the pit were two pillars and what was described as a figurine of the god Huehuetiotl, a deity found in the pantheons of several Mesoamerican civilizations. So I find it really humbling to think of the temple atop this massive pyramid. What was this temple atop the pyramid used for? What happened at this temple? What was likely stolen from the walls and depths of the pyramid? We'll never know. But what we do know is that the things the ancient people left behind tell us a lot about what was valued. So the statue of Huehuetiotl, and again, this is an Aztec name, was the god of fire. It makes a lot of sense that his statue would be found in a pyramid of the sun, right? Sun, fire. Maybe. I mean, it's also an Aztec assumption that this was a sun pyramid and a god of fire at all. So who knows? <laughs> yeah. But why was this statue left behind when the pyramids were looted? We'll never know the answer to that. Like, why didn't they take their god with them? Also, isn't it interesting that the Pyramid of the Sun is a pyramid within a pyramid? Mm-hmm. It's a nesting pyramid. It is. The Pyramid of the Sun is a pyramid within a pyramid. Now, we're going to move on to two other landmarks in uh, Teotihuacan, the Pyramid of the Moon and the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. The Temple of the Feathered Serpent is actually a pyramid, but it's usually called a temple. Because the sources are, are perversely confusing sometimes. The next biggest building in Teotihuacan was the Pyramid of the Moon. And again, that's the Aztec name or the Aztec sort of description we've had. The Pyramid of the Moon is at the northern end of the Avenue of the Dead. It is 140 feet high and 426 by 511 feet around. Its main staircase faces the Avenue of the Dead. It's flanked on either sides by smaller buildings. And worldhistory.org tells us, quote, The Pyramid of the Moon is very similar to, albeit slightly smaller than, its neighbor, the Pyramid of the Sun. The present exterior covers six progressively smaller pyramids, constructed circa 150 AD. 
So this one is even more of a nesting doll. It's like six pyramids within pyramids. Exactly, right? Incredible. Teotihuacan is just so full of secrets and nesting doll pyramids, and it's just everything I've ever wanted. Okay, continuing the quote. There is no inner chamber as in the Sun Pyramid, but the foundations did contain many dedicatory offerings, such as obsidian and greenstone felines and eagles and a single person. Offerings were also buried at each subsequent construction stage, and three males were buried just beneath the summit. The accompanying precious jade objects suggest that they were important Maya nobles. There are also the remains of sacrificed animals, including pumas, rattlesnakes, and birds of prey. So just to break this down a bit, the moon pyramid is six pyramids within a pyramid, and each time they built a new pyramid, they sacrificed people up in there, right? Well, it only told us there are about four human sacrifices up in there. So I'm not sure that each time they built a layer, they sacrificed someone. We know for sure there are four people in there. That includes the three Mayan nobles. It's a little unclear if there's anybody else in there. And that might be because they haven't excavated and dug through that and had a look at all the layers. I'm not sure. The sources tell us there are four people there. So anyway, unlike the Sun Pyramid, there are no inner chambers. But there were animal and human sacrifices, as we've discussed. These would have been made as the pyramid was being constructed. It's possible that the sacrificed men that we were talking about were Mayan nobles, these human sacrifices, based on the objects buried with them. The Mayans were another Mesoamerican culture with their territory roughly, I mean, they were not close by. Their territory was roughly 300 to 500 miles southeast of Teotihuacan. It encompassed what's today Guatemala, Belize, and western parts of El Salvador and Honduras. They were an ancient culture by this time, with their oldest occupations dating to around 2600 BC. But the classical Maya period, the time we associate with their own monumental pyramids, urban centers, very elaborate artwork, got started around 250 AD. That seems to be around the time that they had contact with Teotihuacan. So the fact that these three men were buried with jade artifacts suggests that they may have been Mayan as the Maya put great religious significance on jade and used it in their artwork jewelry, and even body modification. Some Mayan lords had jade-encrusted teeth. It also suggests that they were nobility because jade was expensive, but the fact that they were used as human sacrifices suggests that they may have been war captives. This may have been how the Maya initially came into contact with the people of Teotihuacan, although that certainly wasn't the end of it, and we don't know that for sure. And also there was a lot of trade going in and out of Teotihuacan, which we'll talk about a little later. So it's possible they got here by trade, but not likely that's why they wound up in the pyramid. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Like if they were Maya nobles that wound up in the pyramid, they were probably like high status war captives is my guess. I could be wrong on that. Same. If you wind up in the pyramid, you probably are a high status war captive. Just a general rule of thumb. (laughs) General rule of thumb. So The animals chosen to be sacrificed in the moon pyramid also tell us something about the men sacrificed there. These were all fierce animals, pumas, rattlesnakes, and birds of prey. Is this saying the men were just as fierce? Were they perhaps Mayan generals or war leaders? Were these animals sacrificed for protection? What exactly was their significance? We don't know. We also don't know much about the history of Mayans arriving in Teotihuacan. We do know that there was a whole Mayan quarters. So Mayans did get there where they were captives, maybe. And I didn't want to get into the wars and conquests they might have been fighting because it's not really relevant to looking at the buildings that were left behind and what we actually know. Like we do know that they had some wars and battles and things like that that we think were going on that might have caused migrations and people to come in. But anyway, so 
Was this temple built after the arrival of Mayans into the city or to honor a Mayan deity? Or were these Mayans sacrificed after a particularly bloody conquest or battle? Or was the sacrifice more in line with the beliefs of the original Teotihuacanos that just so happened to overlap with Mayan sacrifices? Like, we just don't know the answer here. After the Pyramid of the Moon, there is the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpent at the south end of the Avenue of the Dead. Again, that's the Aztec name. And this pyramid is incredibly interesting. Let's talk about all the bodies in the pyramid of the fair, the serpent. <laughs> this pyramid is like, you won't survive this ride, kids. It's the motto of the pyramid of the feathered serpent. <laughs> you won't survive that ride, I'm telling you. It's a one-way tunnel. <laughs> People can come in, but no one comes out. So first, let's talk about the feathered serpent. The feathered serpent is extremely prominent in the iconography of cultures throughout Mesoamerica. The Aztecs had a feathered serpent deity called Quetzalcoatl. The Mayans called theirs different things, including Kukulkan and Tohil, depending on the region. I just want to say this because I didn't describe this in the episode, so I'm just going to tell you guys. What completely bowled me over about this feathered serpent is this feathered serpent is a rattlesnake. Its tail is a rattlesnake's tail. Yeah, that was fascinating when you told me that because I never knew it. And this aligns with the rattlesnakes in the moon pyramid, right? Like they clearly had, you know, some sacred significance for rattlesnakes particularly. Yeah, and I think the thing about rattlesnakes that was probably important is rattlesnakes warn you when they're going to strike. You can hear rattlesnakes. Unlike other snakes in this area in general, like a rattlesnake gives you a warning it's there. A rattlesnake is kind of not afraid of you. It's like, you should be afraid of me. We pour one out for the poor sacrificed animals and people in the moon pyramid. If you feel bad for them, wait till you see what happened in the feathered serpent. I know the feathered serpent's going to be rough. (laughs) So the first feathered serpent imagery appears among the Olmec people, perhaps the earliest large scale Mesoamerican civilization. They date from roughly around 1400 B.C., But this temple at Teotihuacan may be the first temple dedicated entirely to the feathered serpent in Mexican history. Again, it's a pyramid that is also a temple. People call it a temple, but it is a pyramid. It dates from around 150 to 200 AD. So roughly, we think the Pyramid of the Sun was built first, around 100 AD. Then came the Pyramid of the Moon, and then the Feathered Serpent Temple, all within roughly 50 to maybe 100 years of each other. Of the three major pyramids at Teotihuacan. This one is the wildest. Stuff went down at this temple slash pyramid. And Jenny, we're now going to get to the stuff that you've literally been waiting for since I texted you I was covering this topic. The human sacrifices and bodies where they shouldn't be. That's what I love, Jen. Bodies, lots of bodies are going to be coming our way. Uh, Prepare yourself. (laughs) Get excited, everybody. (laughs) The Temple of the Feathered Serpent is decorated with 260 feathered serpent heads, which are meant to represent Quetzalcoatl. And again, this is the Aztec name, the serpent god who is linked to fertility and the afterlife. 260 serpent heads. I just have to repeat that because it's fascinating and that's so many snake faces. So many snake faces. So it's believed that the people of Teotihuacan use these 260 serpents as sort of a calendar. Each serpent has an open mouth with a space to place a small counter in. It's believed that priests could place a counter in each mouth and move it around based on the day of the year, which is so 
just so brilliantly interesting. Right. It's fascinating. So later, the Aztecs built their own calendar based on this building's calendar. So their sacred divinatory calendar also has 260 days. Teotihuacan. That's where they got the idea from. The Aztecs used this to build their own calendar. And they have a really complex calendrical system that also starts with a divinatory calendar of 260 days in a year. I think they also have like a different type of calendar with that numbers things differently. I haven't done a deep dive on the calendar. Anyway, so this is what worldhistory.org tells us about the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. Quote, The Temple of Quetzalcoatl was a celebration of warfare. It was constructed around 200 AD, and although once partially covered, it is richly decorated with sculptures of feathered serpent and Tlaloc-like heads. So Tlaloc was a deity that the Aztecs later interpreted as a rain god. He wore a distinctive mask and had long fangs and big round eyes. He's got these big old eyeballs. He's uh, very intense to look at. He has all the thoughts. Yeah, everybody says that Tlaloc is the most extra of the Aztec gods. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, let's get back to this quote. Quote, these decorative elements were once brightly painted in blue, red, yellow, and white. The pyramid has seven levels, and over 200 non-local males and females were sacrificed to commemorate its completion. Amongst these were two groups of 18 young warriors who, with hands tied behind their backs, were sacrificed and buried in two large pits on the north and south sides of the building. At each corner of the pyramid, another victim was buried, and in the heart of the structure, another 20 sacrificial victims were buried along with a vast hoard of precious objects. The numbers are significant as each of the calendar months had 20 days, and there were 18 months in the Mesoamerican year. In addition, at the heart of the temple are two burial chambers, which were emptied, perhaps by residents of Teotihuacan, circa 400 AD, but one remaining feathered serpent baton suggests that the occupants were rulers. Can we just pause for just a minute? Yeah, yeah. 200 non-local males and females went into the pyramid. What does that tell us? About these people, Jenny, what does it tell us? Well, it suggests to me that they may have been war captives. That's exactly what it tells us. These people were probably war captives, and they went into this pyramid to commemorate its its being finished, its being built. And they didn't just go into this pyramid as sacrificial victims in just one or two pits. It was a very regimented way in which they were buried, which was meant to signify their calendar and their year. And as we've talked about volcanic climate change, which was happening at this period quite a lot, they were so worried about the sun rising and setting and the months being normal and everything being okay that these bodies might have needed to go in in this particular order to make sure that everything remained okay and the sun came back and the moon came back and all those things. Yeah. I really wanted to include this quote because it really explains the purpose of this temple. The quote kind of says in its own way that the pyramid was kind of a celebration of warfare. And the reason they think that has to do with both the iconography and the sacrifices. And I mean, of course, the god that it's, it's to, it's a god of war, right? Well, do we know that or do, do the Aztec tell us that? Well, the Aztec tell us that. So we don't 100% know that. But it's an assumption that I think is somewhat fair in this situation, but who knows? It's somewhat fair, but always be aware of your lens. Thank you for reminding me of my lens. It's the Aztec lens for once and not the colonizer lens. Well, Azte- the Aztecs were absolutely also colonizers. They were absolutely colonizers. They just weren't white colonizers. Everyone can be a colonizer. Maybe don't. Don't. 
pick another major. <laughs> Maybe like actively just don't do it, you know? <laughs> so the people sacrificed here were not locals, meaning they were probably war captives. This may also have been true of the Pyramid of the Moon, but the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpent really steps it up in terms of the number of people sacrificed. Yeah, because if you look at like that time between 100 and 200 AD, that's when at least one of the volcanoes erupted, right? Yeah, and again, knowing what I know about climate change at this point in time, maybe they really were scared the sun wasn't coming back. There could have been this belief that if they didn't do all these human sacrifices, like they had to do this to make the sun return, basically. It might have disappeared because of volcanic ash. So what this also means, Jenny, is that the people of Teotihuacan really ramped up their warfare between roughly 100 and 200 AD. And that could also have to do with the scarcity of resources during volcanic eruptions or any kind of climate change at this point in time. Too many people, not enough resources, there will be fights. What we're seeing here in this temple slash pyramid is kind of a sacrifice of people to the war machine, to the ongoing power and dominance and war. So the sacrifices at the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpent tell us that whatever it had been before, Teotihuacan had evolved into a very militaristic society. Early in its history too, right? Yeah, well, yeah, this is quite early into its city history. And that they kept their power through might. And again, just a reminder at this point in time, you might have had a lot of climate change insecurity influxes of refugees and resources might have been real scarce. So you probably would have seen a large scale amount of people fighting with each other. We see a lot of evidence of warriors from Teotihuacan in murals and artwork found throughout Mesoamerica. This is a quote from worldhistory.org. They're very distinctive, apparently. Quote, Teotihuacan's fearsome warriors, as depicted on murals, carry athlatl dart throwers and rectangular shields, and they wear impressive costumes of feather headdresses, shell goggles, and mirrors on their backs. They wore goggles? They did. Shell goggles. Isn't that incredible? Wow. So anyway, this would be something that was repeated later in Aztec culture and conquest. All that stuff we know about the Aztecs taking war captives for their own human sacrifice machine, the engine that ensured the sun would rise again the next day, they got that from Teotihuacan. There's also some interesting stuff that's been found beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. I mean, Mound 72 level interesting, let me tell you what. <laughs> Shout out to Cahokia. When I found all this stuff, I just sent Jenny just like a massive text screed of like quotes on quotes on quotes of the things that were found. And she was like, but tell me more. And I was like, I think that's everything. She's like, I'll find more. Don't worry. <laughs> and then we did. Then we found something like super new last night. And I was like, whoa, we're getting to it. No spoilers. But you'll see when we get there. So in 2003, two archaeologists, Sergio Gomez Chavez and Julie Gazzola, discovered a shaft dug at the foot of the pyramid. The shaft was almost perfectly circular and plunged over 60 feet straight down into the earth. When they rappelled down to the bottom, they found a tunnel blocked at both ends by immense slabs of stone. So, the excavations of this area took years. It took years to get permission to dig, during which archaeologists mapped tunnels and chambers under the feathered serpent pyramid using ground-penetrating radar. In the tunnels, eventually when they opened up the tunnels, they found chisels, hammers, wooden tools, and even a worker's handprint on the wall. The tools were carbon dated to around roughly 150 AD, around the time of the pyramid's construction. It's believed that the passages were sealed around 200 AD, just 50 years after they were built. Yeah, and I was watching this uh, blowing up history about this particular find that they had. 
essentially they they thought that they were going to hit like a burial chamber of kings at the end and that's not what they found but they were showing you how they were pulling stuff out of the earth and some of the things that they pulled up were these perfectly preserved ceramic like pot jars that you could still see the rope print of how it would have been carried. And I was just completely blown away by that. Wow. Archaeologists found a tunnel over 328 feet long, with chambers to the north and south and a series of galleries carved into the rock. The tunnel was largely blocked with over a thousand tons of rubble, which the archaeologists cleared in a painstaking process that took years. They found thousands of artifacts during the process, some buried in the rubble, others laid out carefully in the chambers and galleries as if offered to the gods. Can we just stop for a minute? They put a thousand tons of rubble here. They did not want people going down this tunnel. They did not want anyone going in there. They took pains to keep you out. Uh, Artifacts included wooden masks inlaid with quartz and jade, stunning necklaces and rings and other jewelry. Green stones shaped into crocodile teeth and human figures, crystals carved into the shape of eyeballs, a box of iridescent beetle wings, large spiral seashells, the bones of jaguars, and fragments of human skin. They also found strange, mysterious spheres. They were small, only half an inch to an inch across, made from cores of clay covered by oxidized pyrite to form a sort of sparkly outer surface of yellow jarzite. I don't know what all these minerals are, but the point is that it's very sparkly. It's like a mirror ball. Like, it's like a disco ball. Absolutely. Hundreds of these sparkly golden orbs, or golden balls, were found in the tunnel and caverns. And they have baffled archaeologists. What do they mean? What were they for? It's a mystery. They were for an ancient disco down there. They were dancing. I mean, it was an underground rave, realistically. One of the chambers under the pyramid was found to contain a miniature landscape. This is absolutely blowing my brain. A miniature landscape of mountains and valleys. Amidst the mountains were nestled sacred objects, including a rubber ball used in Mesoamerican ball games. Traces of mercury found here suggest that originally, the teensy-tiny little valleys may have held lakes of liquid mercury. What? Oh my god. And that's not all. The walls and ceiling of the tunnel itself was carefully coated with a sparkly powder of pyrite, hematite, and magnetite. This ceiling would have glowed like the night sky when hit with torchlight. It would have been like walking under the night sky underneath this pyramid. And it was so important to the people who were here that only certain of you were allowed to walk under this night sky that they blocked it off. The chamber to the south, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jen? From what I've read, the chamber to the south was clover-shaped. When archaeologists went to excavate this chamber, they found it blocked with just tons and tons of rubble and boulders as if the people who blocked it didn't want anyone ever getting into that chamber ever, especially not this one. But when they finally opened the chamber, they found it empty. Were there signs that it was looted? Like, was there any other way looters could have gotten in there? I don't know. That's the mystery. They spent all this time thinking we're going to find the Temple of Kings or it's going to be the super important find. And then they opened it and it was empty. I bet there were ghosts in there. I bet there was a curse. Oh, there's so many ghosts in there. They freed those ghosts to the world. Much has been written about the chambers and tunnels under the Feathered Serpent Pyramid. Some researchers believe the entire underground construct was meant to represent the journey to the underworld and may have been used as an underground pilgrimage route. 
with pilgrims journeying from the realm of the living to that of the dead, and perhaps participating in rituals in the sacred chambers at the ends of the passage. Effectively, below this temple was a tunnel, and this tunnel recreated the cosmos. It recreated the world between the living and the dead. And I've seen in places it recreated being born and leaving the spirit world and going into the human one, and then eventually, I guess, going back to the spirit world. This is all a lens and an interpretation. Like, who knows, really? And I would say it's kind of a woo-woo lens here, but I really liked it, so I kept it in. And they did this with pyrite, and this is something that would have been available in this area. You can only imagine what it would have looked like being underground, in the dark, seeing these flickering stars made out of rocks. Who got to see this? We don't know. But it's truly something that blew my mind. And it's kind of woo-woo when I found it, like, in a few different places, but couldn't tell if it was real or not real. It is real. It's real. You just have to believe. Just believe in the tunnels under the Feathered Serpent Pyramid. If we all believe together. (laughs) I do believe. So there's one final building that I want to talk about here. And there are so many buildings. Like, we could spend forever in Teotihuacan talking about the buildings and stuff like that. But this is a focus season. I added some buildings after this one. This is not, in fact, the last building. God, why did you add more buildings? We don't need it. You're you're wrong. (laughs) I am not wrong. I know I'm right. I knew about the buildings and I chose to keep it focused. Yeah, I overruled you. Always, always. So the next building that we're going to talk about is the Butterfly Palace. And I really wanted to talk about this structure. Because it ties into some research that Jenny did for our book. It actually ties into my absolute favorite goddess that we covered, or one of my favorite goddesses. I think she was the first one that I found. They're all her favorites. They are, but she was the first one that I found when we were looking into ones that we didn't know already that we wanted to cover. It's Itzpapalotl, the obsidian warrior butterfly goddess, who's also a skeleton of the Aztecs. And she's illustrated in our book, so if you want to see the illustration, pre-order. She's in Women of Myth. I was super excited about her. I love her. So basically, the Aztecs had this skeletal butterfly warrior goddess whose wings were made of obsidian knives. Like, it sounds all nice, butterfly goddess. Oh, but she was not. Skeletal warrior goddess, butterfly wings made of obsidian knives. There is a belief that I have read in the research I did for this episode that they believed that Aztec warriors came back as butterflies. Actually, Aztecs had these sort of club sword things that had obsidian, bits of obsidian knives kind of embedded in them. So that kind of does make sense just in terms of their weaponry. That's why her wings have knives. In my brain, I've conflated those. Obsidian knives were also the sacred knives used to perform human sacrifices. So they played a really important ritual role. And of course, as we all know, Teotihuacan, that was their major export, was obsidian, which we're getting to. Yeah, well, of course, obsidian was their thing because there was so much of it from the volcanoes. (laughs) Just again, volcanoes. Anyway, I'm supposed to tell you about Itzpapalotl. In Aztec culture, she's the skeletal butterfly warrior goddess with obsidian wings. We cover her in Women of Myth. She's got some mythology uh, associated with her. It's possible that the Aztecs got the idea of Itzpapalotl from this palace because it's the palace of... Quetzalcoatl, according to the Aztecs, that was their name for it. It's quite possible that the Aztecs 
saw that palace and its iconography and used it to create their concept of a butterfly warrior goddess, or perhaps combined what they saw in this palace with a pre-existing goddess that they had already to create something new. It's a little hard to tell. This may have been the uh, origin place of Eats Papalotl. Located at the southwestern corner of the Pyramid of the Moon, this palace was made to impress. It's a place where people would have lived, either a family or potentially maybe priests, but we're not sure. So what you can see today dates from around 450 to 500 AD, but the current temple was built over an earlier temple that was built around 250 to 300 AD. That one was buried intact beneath the newer temple and you can still visit it. It's underground. This is not a pyramid. It's more like a palace or a temple complex. It stands just southwest of the Temple of the Moon, facing the Avenue of the Dead. And it is truly impressive. A wide staircase rises to a colonnaded porch lined with pillars that looks almost ancient Greek. Inside, there is a courtyard with elaborately decorated and carved pillars. Archaeologists believe this building could have been the home of an important priest or leader and was probably also used for ritual purposes. So again, the name of the palace in the Aztec language, Nahuatl, it's Quetzalpapalotl. It comes from the words that mean precious feather and butterfly due to the imagery so prevalent in the temple. But here's the thing. So archaeologists think that the Aztecs maybe misinterpreted all the things that they were seeing in this temple. Later research suggests that what they were seeing were not butterflies at all. They were, in fact, owls, and that the winged beings in this palace were supposed to be owls. They were not butterflies. This is a quote from UncoveredHistory.com. Quote, Research carried out both within Teotihuacan and the cities that it traded with has identified the repeated use of owl iconography to describe Teotihuacano warriors, priests, and its ruling elite. The bas-relief carvings found on the pillars of the palace of Quetzalpapalotl are now recognized as portraying the Teotihuacano owl. And looking closely at the images on the pillars, the bird-like character is very much in keeping with the owl iconography found all over the city. In fact, the pillars appear to be an assemblage of icons that are found throughout the mural art of Teotihuacan. So the people of Teotihuacan, like, the owls were really important in their symbology, mostly as it related to the ruling class. Is that the case? Or maybe the warrior class? Yeah, that's what I was getting out of this. That seemed to be the case, was that's how it was related. But obviously, the Aztecs thought they were butterflies. And it's quite possible, in fact, likely, in fact, um, pretty much certain that this temple originally had nothing to do with a butterfly goddess, which is a bummer. But I did get to talk about Eats Papalotl, so I guess that's a win. I know. Isn't that such a crazy game of ancient world telephone? Like, it just fascinates me. But anytime we get to talk about her, it makes me happy. But also just like the whole, again, we talked about this earlier with Carfi. Like, it's just this idea. And we talked about this a lot in, um, Mithras, which we're going to re-air this month because it's um, December when this episode is dropping. But like when we talked about Mithras, it's like they don't know a lot about it. They found like a couple of images and they're like trying to base the whole religion based on these images. Anyway, let's, let's get back to what's happening here with the butterflies. So incidentally, the palace under the palace is called the Palace of Conks because of its feathered conch imagery. It also contains images of green birds and water iconography. There's something else about this palace that we wanted to talk about. It is one of the few places in Teotihuacan 
where you can see these ancient murals in situ. And the murals are stunning and and they're underground. Is this in the Palace of Conks or in the Palace of Quetzalcoatl? I believe it's in the Palace of Quetzalcoatl. Mm, okay, but still underground, like in the basement. Still underground, in the basement, yeah. Now, take this with a huge salt lick the size of the Sphinx. But I was looking into some research on this and I found this on Wikipedia and I know, I know. This thing I'm going to read you talks about the astroarchaeology of the Palace of Quetzalcoatl. Quote, The Palace of the Butterflies has circles on its walls created with reflective mica, which have been interpreted as representing astronomical bodies. It is very likely that the Palace of Quetzalcoatl functioned as a solar observatory. On the spring equinox, between 7.15 and 7.45 a.m., when the sun rises, a shadow travels upwards along figures etched and painted red onto a battlement-like structure on the west wall. Some of the figures depicted are owls, a bird associated with darkness, as well as rays of light. Allegedly, this fretwork can also be seen at Chichen Itza. How true is this? I don't know. But I do love me some astroarchaeology, so I just wanted to share it. I, I added another thing about murals, and it's brief, Jen, but I just had to do it. So this is about the Palace of the Jaguars. This is a different palace to the west of the Plaza of the Moon. There are murals in this palace as well. The murals here include jaguars holding bleeding conch shells in their mouths. Some believe that these are representative of bleeding hearts. Perhaps, question mark, ripped out of the bodies of sacrificial victims? Question mark? So now we've talked about some of the most important monumental structures of Teotihuacan, and they were truly incredible. But this city also had a very active, just everyday life, with bustling markets, workshops, and residential neighborhoods. The most recent theories state that this was an ethnically diverse city that had people living there from all over the Mexican basin. People including the Maya, the Quiquilcas, the Zapotecs, and others. The neighborhoods were divided into ethnic areas. How do we know that the neighborhoods were divided into ethnic areas? So what I think they found in different areas was like evidence of sort of Mayan writing in some places and some iconography and things that they associated with these cultures. So at its height, the city was home to roughly 150 to 200,000 people. Many were farmers who worked the flooded plains of the Valley of Mexico. But there were also priests, warriors, and lots of merchants. Did they have money? Didn't say anything about the money. May have been like a barter economy. May have been more of a barter. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The main export of Teotihuacan was obsidian. The people of Teotihuacan controlled the obsidian deposit at Pachuca. Obsidian was important to the Mesoamericans. This volcanic rock was used for spearheads, knives, and dart heads. And as we mentioned, also in religious rituals. And Teotihuacan controlled the production and supply of this material. This gave them a lot of power. The main crops flowing in and out of Teotihuacan were cotton, salt, and cacao, which was used to make chocolate. The form of irrigation that the Teotihuacanos used, called chinampa, involved a system of raised flooded fields where they grew corn, squash, beans, chili peppers, avocados, amaranth, and prickly pear cactuses. It was this form of agriculture that the Aztecs would later use to their advantage all those years in the far future. The Teotihuacanos also raised turkeys and dogs for food, and they hunted deer, rabbits, frogs, fish, and peccaries, a kind of small wild pig. 
Their diets were extremely varied. So the people of Teotihuacan had their own form of writing based on glyphs, but this is yet to be deciphered. They also produced textiles, pottery, and ceramics. Teotihuacan pottery and ceramics have been found in elite graves throughout Mesoamerica, suggesting that the city had a lot of cultural cachet. The people who lived in Teotihuacan were diverse, as we've said. Doubtless you could hear dozens of Mesoamerican languages walking down the streets of Teotihuacan in different quarters of the city. Those at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum lived in large, single-story apartment buildings. And this is another thing I added in because this is absolutely fascinating. These apartment buildings are very unique. Archaeologists have found over 2,000 compounds, and each one is uniquely laid out, although they all share some common features. These were all single-story compounds, and there's usually a single entrance, just one entrance everyone goes through, which leads to a large central courtyard with maybe a temple or an altar or some kind of a religious shrine. And from there, passages lead to different apartments, which were usually comprised of rooms with porches surrounding small private courtyards. And these courtyards actually might have been pools or fountains because they were set lower than the other rooms and had drainage systems under the floors. White lime plaster was used, kind of like a concrete, to coat the floors and walls, and there were colorful paintings of people, gods, animals, just, you know, like murals in these apartment buildings. And this is really unique. Apartment buildings are rare in ancient societies. The ancient Romans had insulae. Remember that, Jen? We were talking about that. I think that's the only time I see apartment buildings in an ancient society talked about. I mean, in Mohenjo-Daro, they had, like, you know, houses that were kind of weirdly interconnected. Like, I guess you can say... Scarabray was an ancient apartment building. Scarabray was kind of like a midden apartment building. But in a lot of cases in other cultures, the living standard wasn't good. You know, like the accommodations were cramped and uncomfortable and usually built for impoverished immigrants and they were not great places to live. The ones at Teotihuacan were quite roomy and spacious by comparison, which has been confusing to archaeologists because they'll dig up one of these compounds and it'll be like, well, is this a palace? Is this not a palace? Is this like an apartment building that people who are not wealthy lived? But then why is it so nice? But then if this is like a palace, then where are the regular buildings for regular people? Like this is kind of the least fancy one. So and they're all like this. So I don't know. Like it's it's a little confusing what people are looking at here. She is correct. (laughs) But I would say this season in particular, we have already seen this, right? We've seen this with the Scarabray and the apartments, the walkthrough apartments of Scarabray were, for the time period, rather cozy and roomy. 6.2 people to a bed and you had to go through your neighbor's house to get to your house. I wouldn't say roomy. The archaeologists tell us that for that time period, they were a decent size and would have been cozy. I mean, realistically, if the volcano goes off, I guess we're moving to Teotihuacan. The apartments are just better. Yeah. So, no other Mesoamerican city, including Aztec cities, had apartment buildings like this for commoners. When Aztecs built dwellings like this, they were palaces for the elite. Archaeologists believe that these apartment buildings were all built around the same time, sometime around 200 AD, during a large-scale period of construction. It appears they were built over older houses and agricultural fields. So one thing that the Aztecs did not get from Teotihuacan was their swank-ass apartment buildings. Exactly. And this could have been one of those quarters of immigrants, people that was built at this particular point in time where they were like, okay, we're giving all of us a nice place to live. 
again, this is where we see one of those volcanic eruptions going off. So that this could have well been in response to an influx of immigrants like in other places, except they decided they were going to do it right. We're just going to build some giant compounds for the Mayans and some giant compounds for these other people and like, you know, all these other people who are coming in. Pay attention to the to the building and the sort of materials they use, because later on there will be issues. Um, social inequality at Teotihuacan appears to be fairly low, much lower than other Mesoamerican cultures. They're one of the few that we've seen without an obvious king's residence, for instance, and it's possible that everyday life was radically different here than it was in other nearby cultures. I've seen things where they sort of seem to think there might have been some rolling people who were in charge, but they, they don't exactly know. Perhaps it was the high quality of life that drew people from all over to live in this city. At least around this time in the beginning, right? Like they were like, listen, for the price of like a teensy little shed in this other town, I could have like a multi-bedroom apartment with a porch and a courtyard? Like, sign me up. I am moving to Teotihuacan. Anyway, this quote is from WideUrbanWorld.com, a website maintained by Michael E. Smith, an archaeologist who specializes in Mesoamerican sites. He says, quote, It seems clear that most people at Teotihuacan had large, spacious dwellings to live in. They had access to a wide range of household goods for cooking, ritual, crafts, and other activities. There doesn't seem to have been a strong, autocratic king ruling things, yet someone has enough clout to carry out a major urban renewal project. We can't find much evidence for a definite elite class, and people lived in a type of housing that was unique in the pre-modern world. What was going on at Teotihuacan? These facts remain disconnected and tantalizing. And we desperately need more research to figure things out. But I think we can conclude that people there were living the good life as part of the wide urban world. And like what I'm seeing in the sources here is confusing because I've seen other sources, and I'm sure Jen, you have too, that say that there were a lot of palaces and, you know, elite residences. And those were mainly along the uh, Avenue of the Dead. Like that seems to be the elite area. Yeah, that's like your Mayfair. That's like your Kensington Knightsbridge. That's your expensive place to live. And then generally there's a place where the people who are the nurses and the bus drivers and whatever else can apply to live and be able to live in a super expensive place. And it's super important because you can't be like an essential worker, someone who like has to do the work that keeps the city going and not be able to live in that area where you're supposed to do that work. I think you're seeing something similar here in Teotihuacan, right? Like you would have had people who were essential to different aspects of life that had to be able to live in that area so that they could do that work. And maybe we're seeing a more fair socialist way of life. Maybe, but I'm not seeing Mohenjo Daro and the social equity of the Indus Valley here. I'm definitely seeing some wealth inequality with these palaces and everything. Sure. I mean, look, this is not. I'm saying socialist. I'm not saying, you know, communist, you know, utopia. And bear in mind, you're now slapping a huge modern lens on this. Totally. And I've made a modern comparison. But I think the big difference here between what was happening at Teotihuacan, when you compare it to places like the Indus Valley Civilization, and even, you know, smaller places like Scarabray, what we see in those places is they were not militaristic societies. What you have with Teotihuacan, which seems to be different, is 
at different points in time, there was a scarcity of resource. And these this is a culture that was warlike. So there were definitely some kind of stratification going on, although not as bad as the rest of Mesoamerica. So I think comparing it to a place like the Indus Valley, like like civilization is is unfair because you have one one civilization here, Teotihuacan, that were warlike. And that's not something we see in the Indus Valley. They also had uh, organized religion pretty clearly that was very well established. I mean, we don't see signs of that in the Indus Valley. I mean, that was another method of social control. What method of social control was used in the Indus Valley is one of the giant question marks. We don't know that. We do know that a little bit more here at Teotihuacan. Yeah. So I think like, yeah, we're always going to say Indus Valley, they were great. They were not warlike, had indoor toilets, you know, they had it all figured out. None of us will ever live up to them. But I want to ask them about volcanic winters. I saw no signs that they were volcanic activity in this area, but there absolutely was climate change. I mean, it, it did seem to occur towards the end when things were falling apart. It happened to them and they didn't live through it, basically, as a society. I mean, people went and went and lived other places. I'm not saying they completely vanished, but... Whereas almost the entirety of Teotihuacan's expansion and growth was occurring during these volcanic eruptions, right? They kind of benefit and became the big ruling city they were as a result. And in order to do that, you had to have some kind of order. You know what they say, Jen? Live by the sword, die by the sword. Live by the volcano. Die by the volcano. We're going to get to that. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, there were some palaces at Teotihuacan, mainly multifamily buildings with workshops attached to them. The Palace of the Butterflies may have been one of these. Also, possibly the Palace of the Jaguars. Unclear. These were grand homes filled with murals and carvings and artwork. They weren't necessarily the homes of kings and queens, and like we said, there hasn't been evidence of kings and queens a royal family discovered at Teotihuacan. We don't know what their ruling class looked like. So, we mentioned religious life here. It's believed that the most important god or deity at Teotihuacan was in fact a spider goddess. This is fascinating. The spider goddess. So this is unusual for Mesoamerican cultures. You don't see a lot of spider deity imagery, but... The spider goddess dominates Teotihuacan. You can see her in murals and sculptures. She wears a fanged mask that sort of looks like a spider's mouth. And it's fascinating that a spider goddess seems to be the leading deity here. This is just fascinating. I mean, spiders do a lot of good for people. They keep away insects. I'm a fan. I love spiders. But I'm so curious as to why this was the main goddess. I mean, we just don't know. We don't know. Spiders do so much good. They are also, particularly in this area, they are quite venomous. Mm-hmm. There were other important gods throughout the city. We talked about the owl iconography that was mainly associated with the ruling class. There was a water goddess. There was a three-meter-high statue of this water goddess in Teotihuacan. The god of water and war, Tlaloc, that's actually an Aztec god, but they got the concept of Tlaloc from Teotihuacan. He was super extra. No, an Aztec goddess being extra? Never. Not in my life. Skeletal butterfly warrior goddess, never. The crazy eyes guy. Tlaloc was an important deity given the need for rain in this climate and also the warlike culture of both the Aztecs and the people of Teotihuacan. You can see other gods as well, like the feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatl, and the old fire god who was also a god of renewal, who we talked about earlier. All these interpretations are Aztec. We don't actually know what these gods represented to the people of Teotihuacan. It's believed that the positions of the temples and pyramids might have lined up with the sun on the June solstice and had something to do with the Pleiades. 
we talk about them in Women of Myth. They're a collection of stars that you could see at different times of the year. I think it's just another astrological sort of how they lined up and what that might have meant. I didn't go too deep into the rabbit hole because there wasn't a, really a lot to uncover. They just think it might have had an astro-archaeological fit. Right. So the way that the temples and pyramids in the city were lined up with various astral landmarks, stars and things, might have been essential for telling the seasons apart and telling when it was the right time for various rituals and when it, you know, when it was the right time to plant and things like that. Fertility and climate concerns were very much at play here. Given the volcanic eruptions in the 100s AD and 245 to 315 AD, it was a real possibility that the people of Teotihuacan were afraid of their gods and what they might do if they weren't appeased. Volcanic winter, destruction of entire cities and crops was something that would have happened within many of these people's lifetimes. So when you look at the human and animal sacrifice that was practiced here, it's important to remember the particularly unstable times that these people were living through. The conquistador Hernán Cortés, dickhead, who visited the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan in 1521, described the Aztecs performing a grisly ritual of human sacrifice. According to him, at the top of the Aztec pyramids, priests would cut open the chests of victims using sharp obsidian blades and remove their still-living hearts as a sacrifice to the gods. Then they'd throw the bodies down the pyramid steps. Many initially dismissed the conquistadors' descriptions of this and other human sacrifice rituals as essentially propaganda, a means of demonizing a culture to justify genocide. But archaeological evidence found since does support the fact that these sacrifices happened. According to Aztec religious beliefs, and you have to take this with a total grain of salt here because a lot of this we're getting through a Spanish lens, the god Huitzilopochtli, the god of the sun, was constantly waging a war against the forces of darkness. If he faltered, the world would be plunged into endless dark. And the Aztecs believed, allegedly, that in order to keep the sun god's strength up, they had to constantly feed him with the hearts and blood of human sacrifices. They had to do it to keep the sun rising every day. That is allegedly what the belief was that was driving all this human sacrifice. And we have not done a deep dive into the culture of the ancient Aztecs yet. We haven't parsed out what we can and can't trust, according to the sources. So this is probably a vast oversimplification. And you have to take some and or all of this with a giant sphinx-sized grain of salt. But according to these beliefs, that's why they had a war machine. That's why they felt they had to keep up ever-escalating wars with their neighbors to bring back captives to keep their gods strong and fed because they used war captives as their human sacrifices, just like the people of Teotihuacan did. I mean, it was also about colonization and domination, though, let's be real. So you can see so much of this in the ancient iconography of Teotihuacan. The human sacrifice of war captives, the war machine that kept it going, the bloody conch shells on the walls, possibly representative of human hearts. Did this come from Teotihuacan too? This idea that they had to keep the sun rising through human sacrifice? Did legends of the sun disappearing for days or months behind clouds of volcanic ash incise themselves on the imagination of the Aztec people? Did they perhaps internalize this older culture's trauma around volcanic winter and climate instability? Because the people of Teotihuacan absolutely experienced that. Absolutely, yeah. And the peoples around them. Like, not just the people of Teotihuacan, anyone else whose culture lived through this, and there were many other cultures living through these times, would have had this cultural memory of these eruptions and what that would have looked like afterwards. 
Yeah, like it sounds far-fetched to a modern audience thinking like, why would they think that they had to do all this to keep the sun rising? But then when you think about all these volcanoes erupting during these time periods, there were possibly in the realm of myth and memory and possibly within living memory, depending on when you're talking about, there were times when they the sun just went away. And that must have been terrifying to these people. And when it came back, it didn't always come back with the same intensity because sometimes that happens with volcanic eruptions. And again, I don't know exactly how bad these were, what exactly happened, because there isn't a plenty to document it for us. And we haven't found the evidence of it in the same way we found for really big eruptions like the Thera eruption. Doesn't mean it wasn't bad. Doesn't mean it didn't change everything. This is informed fan fiction from us. You know, we, we cannot say any of this for sure, but it is intriguing to think about. Yeah. So what happened to the people of Teotihuacan? Teotihuacan was the power base in Mesoamerica for a long time. Its influence stretched into the southwest of America, but all of that came to a crashing end, sometimes in most likely the 600s AD. What brought about the demise of this city and its people? What caused this incredible place to be abandoned? There are a few theories. The first theory is about climate change and scarcity of resources. And the second is about an uprising from within or an attack from the outside. So let's look at the first theory. In the 600s AD, archaeologists found signs of climate degradation, possibly due to the growth of the city. Wood was needed in massive quantities to burn lime to produce the plaster and stucco that created the homes and the crafts. This might have led to deforestation, which created problems for farming and the climate. Soil erosion and drought might have contributed to a lack of resources. And this lack of resources probably led directly to the second theoretical cause. Well, we don't know much, if anything, about the internal politics of Teotihuacan. We, we know nothing about that, realistically. We do know that they warred with their neighbors a lot and brought back a lot of captives for human sacrifice. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty established. There was discontent both outside of Teotihuacan and within. Another city, Zocacalco, was founded around 650 AD, about 85 miles to the south, by a group of Mayan traders. And that may have been an important rival and competitor for trade dominance in the area. Some believe that conflict between the two cities might have led to the downfall of Teotihuacan. Maybe the people of Zocicalco sent spies into the city of Teotihuacan to help foment discontent. That could be fan fiction. Probably is. Probably is. It is a theory I saw. But... What is more probable to me, and this is just me, is that the change in climate and the lack of resources led to people being fed up with the ruling elites of Teotihuacan. Are we getting to the eat the rich part? We are. (laughs) This is my first episode where, like, I got to talk about the eating of the rich because I didn't have any this season that was about eat the rich. And I just texted Jenny one night and I was like, eat the rich in all caps. (laughs) And she was like, oh, okay. I guess I see where this is going. Yep. (laughs) Eat the rich, Jen. (laughs) To be fair, this will be the only episode I do this season about eating the rich because my next episode is our seasonal one and it's not about the rich. Well, we'll see. I mean, you haven't done a deep dive yet. Maybe we'll eat the rich for the holidays. Start a new holiday tradition, you guys. Jenny and I are not those podcasters who are making a lot of money from podcasting. We are not rich. Please don't try to eat us. Don't eat us. Good Lord. (laughs) We are not rich. (laughs) So, like the beginning of Teotihuacan, its end may have been caused by a volcanic eruption. Sometime in the 500s AD, a volcano in El Salvador called Ilopango erupted. 
This may have caused widespread climate change and drought in the region. It's probably not a coincidence that around this time, more skeletons of children and adolescents started to show up in the burials of Teotihuacan, suggesting a period of famine and hard times. It's quite possible that climate change led to widespread drought and famine, death and suffering, and discontent with the ruling elites, maybe even a loss of faith in their gods. There's evidence of widespread looting, destruction, and fire around the 600s AD. Originally, archaeologists thought that outside invaders were the culprits. However, more recent studies have found that it really was only the elite palaces and structures that were destroyed, the buildings along the Avenue of the Dead. This suggests an uprising from within, fomented by discontented people of the lower classes. Perhaps the living situation had dissolved from 200 AD. For whatever reason, they decided it was time to eat the rich. Look, that swank apartment just wasn't going to cover for all the other problems in that city. It's like, yeah, I have a guest room, but also my child died of starvation. I have a guest room, but there is no food to eat. (laughs) Right. You know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. (laughs) I have a porch. I do have easy outdoor access via the porch. However, there are no crops at all in the field. (laughs) It's a problem. And the gods are absolutely unresponsive. We keep dialing the helpline. Nobody's answering. We keep dialing the helpline. We keep sacrificing our people to the war machine, and still, there is no food. And to top it all off, the sun disappeared. I mean, I do have a guest room, though. (laughs) Jenny is very, very adamant that one day she would like to live in an apartment where she has a guest room. And I support that dream. It just seems, as a New Yorker who's lived in tiny apartments in New York for much of my adult life, it just seems like the ultimate luxury. I'm like, do they have guest rooms at Teotihuacan? Guest rooms? And outdoor access? <laughs> you are ruining the dramatic moment of this episode. Can we conclude now? So, the city was looted, and then it was abandoned. The people just left. Where did they go? How many died in the looting and riots? We don't know. We do know, or at least we surmise, that when the Aztecs found the city, about 600 years later, they marveled at it. It was a city that existed on an epic scale, a city devoid of people, but not their gods, not their stories. The Aztecs could see all these gods, the feathered serpent, the butterfly goddess who was actually an owl, the spider goddess, the old man fire god. They were all there, waiting to be found, waiting to breathe again, to rise up in another form and have their stories told once more to the world. So that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with a new mystery or maybe our new seasonal episode. I'm not quite sure what comes next. We'll see how we decide to drop these things. We don't know. We don't know what we're doing. (laughs) Come visit us on social media. Ancient His Fan on Twitter. As long as we're on Twitter, I guess that's going on for now. It's the last days of Teotihuacan. We're starting to eat the rich over there. (laughs) And we can also be found at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. So far, Instagram has not collapsed as of yet. We also have a TikTok that I haven't posted on yet, but my New Year's resolution is to have one post in 2023 on our TikTok. Jen keeps trying to make that TikTok fetch without actually posting on the TikTok, which is <laughs> it's kind of a challenge social media-wise. It's definitely a challenge. <laughs> Anyway, come join our Patreon. The Patreon is literally how we keep this podcast alive. And you can find it at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. And we have some patrons to thank. Apologies in advance to anyone whose name we mispronounce. 
Thank you so much to Zoe Ruskin, Jonathan Haga, Erica, just Erica, Jessica Keller, Reverse Chameleon, Roxy Sullivan, Paloma Reyes, Catherine Back, and Abigail Altabeth. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you. Huge thank you to our patrons who are keeping the lights on for both of us in our tiny, tiny homes. We will see you all next week.